Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Dana Saperstein. Dana has been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years. He specializes in trauma as well as depression and anxiety. He runs a podcast called the Fear Me Out Podcast, which I highly recommend. And Dana joined me today to discuss trauma and other psychology topics. It was a great conversation, and I hope to have him on again in the future so we can dive deeper into some of the items we discussed and some that we didn't. Let's welcome Dana. Dana, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So to start off, I wanted to ask, what is trauma and how does the colloquial use of the word differ than the clinical use of the word, if at all? Uh Boy, that's a, those are two really good questions. I think that trauma um, can happen in a bunch of different ways. Um, uh, trauma can happen from emotional uh, um, abuse. It can happen from sexual abuse, from physical abuse. It can happen from neglect. Uh, it can happen as a sort of one-time event or a continuing uh, uh, you know, series of events. Um, it, it, I think that trauma is very varied. It's a, very, it's a kind of a catch-all term. Um, and I think it, it's the same way both clinically and, um, you know, in the general population. I, I, I don't know There's a if there's a specific definition. It's more um, uh, related to post-traumatic stress, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as a clinical psychologist, I treat a ton of people that um, have had really horrible things happen to them in the course of growing up. So my specialty is is uh, helping people heal uh, different types of uh, post-traumatic stress. Okay. And my understanding is trauma isn't always known, right? People aren't always aware of the trauma that they've experienced, right? Well, that's a really good question that you're asking me, especially because um, uh, in the course of the therapy that I did many, many years ago, I was in therapy for about 10 years in really intense therapy. And uh, I dealt with a lot of different kinds of trauma. Um, I experienced a lot of neglect. I, I, when I was a little kid, I saw people being killed. So I uh, um, had that kind of trauma. I, I got hit by a, tr- a truck when I was crossing the street. Well, all kinds of stuff like that. But the question of sexual trauma never came up in the therapy that I did. And when I was 34 years old and my daughter was turning about four, I started having really terrible nightmares um, just out of the blue. And it turned out, this is a long story, I don't need to go into it, but it turned out that that the reason I was having those nightmares was because when I was four years old, uh, I went to the hospital to have surgery. And back in those days, uh, you know, your parents would leave you in the hospital. This was in 1959. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they would leave you there and then you would be cared for by the staff in the hospital. Well, uh, an orderly came in um, when nobody else was around, and he um, uh, put my penis in his mouth and told me if I told anybody, he would kill me. Uh, the next day when they wheeled me in the surgery and I was going under anesthesia, I thought they were actually putting me to death. So I went under anesthesia screaming, I won't tell, I won't tell. And I didn't have any recollection or any kind of awareness of it in any way until I was in my 30s. Uh, I didn't believe at that time that there was such a thing as repressed memory, but then uh, it happened to me. So I came to realize that, yeah, sometimes we block things out on such a deep level 
that um, we have absolutely no recall, um, you know, about whether that sort of thing ever had ever happened. Yeah, and so is that more common in, with children to block things out, or does it happen with adults too? Like if trauma happens as an adult, uh, it does happen with adults, but it's more common in children because um, um, it's so much harder to understand. Uh, what's happening when you're a kid because until you go through puberty your mind kind of thinks in in uh, two dimensions rather than three we think in fairly black and white terms as children yeah. and when you go through puberty your brain expands and develops more than even your secondary sexual characteristics and so that's why teenagers think they know everything because compared to what their brain was like before they went through puberty they do know everything okay. <laughs> they just don't have any experience to back it up yeah and the other thing that's really common for children is that I've never met a person who didn't blame themselves for any of the difficulties that they suffered as a kid. Hmm. It's really common for children to believe that they deserved it or asked for it or did something to cause it. And, um, and yeah, I've, I've yet to meet somebody who hasn't taken that uh, position as a kid. No matter how horrible the situation is, we are so desperately in need of being cared for that um, a lot of times you know, we, we take it on ourselves. Okay. And you uncovered the trauma in therapy, right? Uh, well, I uncovered it in a really unusual way in that, uh, well, most of the trauma I dealt with was in therapy, but it never came up as a question in my therapy because usually uh, a person's symptoms um, are a way of kind of explaining to me what the person's going through. So in, instead of looking at a person's symptoms as a sign that there's something wrong with them, which is the common way that most therapists operate. I'm trying to, to understand what the person's trying to tell me through their symptoms. Um, the only, uh, I'm not sure how graphic you want me to be. Is it okay to be you graphic? Can, yeah, you can say whatever you want. Um, in my development as a sexual person, I never understood why people liked, liked oral sex as much as they did. Because whenever somebody would be performing oral sex on me, I would just go numb. And I would think to myself, well, I don't know what people make such a big deal about this for because it's not doing anything for me. Yeah. But that was the only symptom I had of the sexual trauma that I suffered. Usually people develop much more severe symptoms in terms of becoming either hyper or hyposexual and all kinds of other, other stuff like that as a way of communicating what it is that happened to them. So it really never came up in the therapy that I did with um uh, the person that I was in therapy with, he was a wonderful, incredibly talented man. And he's re actually being, was responsible for me becoming a therapist myself, but it just never came up. And I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a really long story how it got uncovered. Uh, and it happened in a very miraculous way because it happened uh, in the context of, of me also being sort of opened up in a spiritual way at the same time that it, um, the trauma came forward and was healed. So it was a it was a really amazing experience that I went through, but it didn't happen in a very normal uh, sort of a way. Okay, interesting. Um, so you you spoke about having very few symptoms. Is trauma usually uncovered because of the symptoms seen later, or are there other ways that it's uncovered that there is trauma present? Well, I mean, there's lots of people who remember their trauma, and um, I mean, I worked with a family recently who the older brother started uh, sexually attacking his younger brother and sister when the sister was two and the brother was four. And they endured the, that kind of horribly sadistic 
sexual um, experiences till they were for almost four or five years before one day they told their father mm. and then everything came out in the open. So it does, it's very dependent on the situation and the person. But I will say that most sexual trauma happens at the hands of somebody uh, that is known to the person in the family. It's uh, very unusual for someone to be preyed upon by a stranger. Okay. That makes sense. If if somebody is blocking out trauma, if, if somebody believes that they have trauma that they just don't remember that's blocked out, how can they uncover that? And should they? Is it always a good idea to uncover that trauma? Or what do you recommend? Well, the, you know, the hard thing is us human beings, we have a really hard time accepting something that we can't sort of prove. Um, you know, you can't have any feelings without somebody saying, well, why do you feel that way? And then you have to come up with a reason. And so that makes it difficult because a lot of times, you know, I meet people that have symptoms that indicate that, you know, they've been victimized in some way or another, but they don't really remember it clearly. And I usually try to tell the person that you are not the things that happened to you and didn't happen for you. That's not who you are. Those are the things that you experience. And if you can allow yourself to come to terms with the feelings you don't have to remember the details. Okay. But as people, it's really hard for us to accept that. So I do a lot of hypnotherapy with people. When a person is being traumatized, they go into a trance in order to cope. And um, that's what blocks out the feelings associated with the trauma. And that's why we get post-traumatic stress, because uh, we're so busy in survival mode that we don't really get to process what happened to us. So... Doing hypnosis puts you right back into the uh, electrical chemical state that you're in when you are coping with trauma. And then I develop ways of helping people release and connect and release with those feelings so that um, they're no longer uh, experiencing the symptoms that they they do as a result of, of the feelings being buried inside. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. So... Um how do you reprogram someone's psychological and physiological response to triggers when they've had trauma? Well, it's not necessarily that I'm reprogramming them. What I'm helping them do is maybe experience what they were feeling for the first time. Okay. Because you, you really don't experience what's happening when you're being traumatized. You're in survival mode. Most people describe becoming numb a lot of embarrassment happens with people in sexual trauma because they wonder, well, how come I didn't fight? How come I didn't run? Well, you know, why did I just freeze and, and just sort of go away from my body and allow whatever was happening to me? And, and that's a, a great source of shame. But it's a really common thing because when we're being preyed upon, we freeze as a way of trying to protect ourselves from what's happening to us. It's not just human beings that freeze under these kind of circumstances. So there was a man who uh, uh, was looking at predator-prey relationships in Africa, and he was watching cheetahs going after impalas or whatever they eat. And, and he kept the camera on them because cheetahs are pretty intense in the way that they hunt. Yeah. And they only eat what they kill. They, they don't have the digestive system to eat anything that they don't kill themselves. So they're running across the prairie full speed, and then all of a sudden the impala falls over and appears to be dead because its nervous system completely shuts down. So the cat then stops and you know looks at the animal that appears to be dead and knocks it around a little bit, but it's so, it so appears to be dead that the impala walks away and doesn't consume 
the animal. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen always, but so the, what the guy did was keep the camera on the Impala to see what would happen next. <clears throat> what he noticed was that the Impala starts trembling intensely, and it trembles the trauma of almost being killed out of its system. He gets up and looks around and goes, whoa, can't believe I'm alive, and wanders away, and, uh, and it's just fine. Well, he decided to mess with the trembling response and not allow the animals to fully tremble back to life again, mm -hmm. and they were never able to function normally. They became hypervigilant, sort of really tweaked, and got consumed quickly because they were what we would call uh, animals that were suffering from post-traumatic stress. And I thought that was really interesting because if you think about it, as humans, we do tremble when we're cold, but also when we're really scared. Yeah. But we can't, a trembling is not enough for a human being to release the same kind of trauma that, that a, another animal will be because we have a cortex that requires us to be also to be able to um, uh, process it in, on an intellectual feeling, on a feeling level, not just on a physiological level. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. You mentioned shame. Um, a lot of, and people blame themselves for the trauma that they've had. Yes. And uh, shame is a pretty powerful emotion. How do you address trauma with people and keep them from defining themselves by that trauma and shame that they experienced? Well, everybody that comes to see me it is defined by the shame that they feel and the and the over responsibility they've taken for the things that happened to them that didn't happen for them because we as i said we always blame ourselves and assume that somehow we asked for the cause or did something uh, that you know caused it to happen so it's it's not a question of of keeping people from feeling their shame what i'm actually trying to help people recognize is how much shame is driving their life mm. and how much fear that they have and how um we take our pain and our fear out on ourselves by being self-critical. If you think about it, if you were held accountable for the way you talk to yourself and the way that you think about yourself, you'd be in jail for assault. Yeah. Right? You would never let anybody talk to you the way you talk to yourself. Yeah. And so part of what I try to help people understand is that they're not doing themselves any favors by uh, reinforcing their vulnerability by turning it into aggression. It's really easy for people to begin to recognize how much shame is driving them once they understand what shame feels like. And the difference between shame and guilt is fairly profound. Mm. You know, when you feel guilty, it's usually about something that you did or didn't do. And it's not about you as a person. When you feel ashamed of yourself, it's much more about the kind of person that you are, that you're a bad person. Yeah. And so shame is actually really toxic, whereas guilt is somewhat necessary in order for us to become civilized from being, you know, little kids that barely have control over their impulses. Yeah. But people can learn to feel their shame directly and deeply and, and really recognize how much it's been driving their lives. And you can release that shame once you start to understand that, that, you know, it's like people that have been in prison for 20 years and they do DNA testing and realize, you know, you got the wrong person. Mm, yeah. And once you understand that it wasn't your fault and you didn't do anything to cause the neglect or the abuse you suffered, it makes it easier to forgive yourself and, and to allow the responsibility to go where it belongs. Okay. You mentioned fear. And yes. I think it's the common belief is that most things we do are motivated by either wanting to avoid pain or experience pleasure. So 
fear is important to our survival. It it's yeah. absolutely necessary. How does experiencing trauma interfere with our ability to use fear constructively? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Um, the reason that I, one of the main reasons why I started my podcast is because I, I think that fear has gotten a bad name. Uh, fear is not the issue. It's how you choose to deal with fear that determines the outcome. If you take your fear and you turn it into aggression, which is the most common way that people deal with fear, and what I mean by aggression is that you become either really self-critical, critical of others, or both. Um, that doesn't solve the fear issue at all. It just adds insult to the injury. Mm-hmm. So what I try to help people understand, like you're saying, is that fear is normal, and you can't survive without it. But when you're traumatized, the amount of fear that comes into your body is so excessive that you develop what are called triggers. And uh, those triggers can be uh, sometimes really fascinating in a certain way. I mean, people have developed triggers to smells, sometimes sounds, uh, visual things, uh, conversations, all, all kinds of different stuff can cause you to, to have your, your trauma triggered within your body. Uh, the most common you know, triggers have to do with people that have been in combat. Yeah. Um, I, I worked with a fellow once who... Uh, was standing next to his best friend and his best friend got killed next to him, uh, standing next to a building in Afghanistan. And when bullets hit a building that's constructed the way they are in that part of the world, it sounds like fingers on a keyboard. Mm. It's that, you know, clicking sort of a sound. And so he was trying to take a typing course at the local college. And every time he would sit in the class and then start to hear people typing he would, he would break out into a complete panic and have to run out of the classroom. And the teacher came out one day and said, you know, are you okay? Because he looked really messed up. And she was smart enough to understand trauma. And he, he said, I can't hear that noise. That noise takes me into the worst nightmare that I can imagine, which is having my best friend die next to me. Yeah. So, he, you know, people get triggered by helicopter blades. They get triggered by Whatever it might be, if it's a war situation, a lot of first responders get triggered just by seeing what happens to us as humans. They don't have to necessarily be there. They come there after the fact. But what they see is so gruesome and and awful that um, it's almost impossible not to become really traumatized as just by being a first responder. Yeah, It's why alcohol and other drugs are such a huge part of of first responders' life because they're made to feel ashamed of uh, being weak in the face of the things that they encounter on a daily basis. Yeah, I, one of the things I've noticed with uh, friends that have, you know, served in the military is most of them don't like fireworks. Actually, um, yes, so they experience those kind of sounds yeah. quite differently than the general public does. It's, yes, it's not so such a happy sound uh, to a lot of them. Yeah. Well, this particular fellow I was mentioning to, when he would walk through the campus and hear all of the young people talking about their trivial lives and their boyfriends and girlfriends and all the stuff that you're supposed to be focusing on at that age, he said that he could sometimes barely control himself, that he wanted to hurt all the people around him because um, when he would walk through crowds in uh, Afghanistan, it was really dangerous. Probably one of the most dangerous things he could do. And so... 
um, it did not feel safe for him to walk amongst people, even though he knew he was sick. Yeah. Because his nervous system got conditioned to be on high alert all the time. Yeah. So, and that's the nature of, of traumatic stress is that um, uh, it's a really strong anxiety reaction to things that a person should never experience. And, uh, you know, being neglected is as profound a form of trauma um, as being abused. I mean, if you really want to hurt somebody that needs you, treat them like they don't matter. Yeah. There's a, not much that hurts more than that. Yeah, actually just thought of this when you said that um somebody i can't remember where i saw but somebody said the opposite of love isn't hate it's indifference yes absolutely yeah i I agree with that yeah so what are some of the changes you've witnessed in people that have addressed their trauma both initially and as they progressed i will tell you that it is a little bit dependent on how severely uh traumatized the person has, you know, been as a kid. Some people, they do really well in healing their trauma. Some people get to a certain point where they just can't do much more because the trauma was so uh, ongoing and and devastating that it's caused sort of, I don't know if you would call it permanent damage to their nervous system. But um, So it depends on the person. It depends on how strong they are inherently. But what I see, generally speaking, is that people get to a place where they feel way better about themselves and they can engage in relationships that are way healthier mm-hmm. and they can also allow themselves to have the success that um, that they were sort of born to have. Because I can't tell you how many people I've met and I first meet them and think, oh my God, this person is amazing. They are so smart and charming and capable and they must be, you know, killing it. Yeah. And then they describe a life to me of, you know, living... Well, Santa Barbara, a marginal life is probably <laughs> different than everywhere else uh, because to live a marginal life here, you got to be a zillionaire. Um, but they're certainly not living up to their potential because a lot of times people um, unconsciously mess up the goodness in their life because they really don't believe they deserve a good life. Yeah. So once you come to terms with your trauma, it's a lot easier to allow yourself to, to um, receive the goodness that life has to offer. Yeah, and you're kind of touching this, but like someone you mentioned was seemed perfectly normal and capable on the outside, but you don't it you don't always know what's going on in the inside of somebody. So somebody who looks like they have everything might not have everything going on inside of them perfectly. You know, that is uh, I think that's a really common um, Problem for a lot of people is we assume everybody's life is better than ours yeah. because a lot of people are really good at pretending. Um, but I think if you're willing to go through life and, and allow your intuition to guide you in most of your interactions, you'll see that most people are kind of lonely and feel unlovable and go through life medicating themselves either through alcohol, work, food, whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think a lot of people are good at acting. And they don't even realize it sometimes. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, what are some of the biggest struggles that along the path of uh, addressing past trauma? Uh, not believing yourself, I think, is the biggest. And and believing that what it is that happened to you is real, because a lot of times, even though people have memories, there's a certain part of us that doesn't want to believe that what happened was real. 
it's just so inconceivable that, um, you know, that the stuff that happened happened, yeah. even though we know it happened. I mean, there was a guy, there was a, a study done a while back about people that were in the court system as children testifying against their sexual abusers. And this guy found these people 20 years later and asked them if they would be interviewed about what their experience was like. And about 40% of the people said, I don't know what you're talking about. That never happened mm. to me. Interesting. Even though there's a record that they testified in court, our need to block these things out is so profound that a lot of these people did not remember that they were in court just testifying against their abuser. Hmm. Really sad. Yeah, that is very sad. So how can people who haven't experienced trauma or haven't experienced the same trauma as somebody else, how can they uh, better navigate the triggers that those people have? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I think it's really common for us to try to talk people out of what they're feeling because um, because we're not comfortable sometimes with how people feel. And the worst thing that you can do is talk somebody out of how they're feeling. Because, again, this is a somewhat controversial statement, but I think that what's real is what you feel, not what you think. I think that we were given a brain to decide to do what a, a, about a, the way that we feel rather than the other way around. Okay. But that means our reality is shifting on a moment-to-moment basis depending on how you're feeling. That's a hard concept for a lot of people to embrace because a lot of us want to feel like we have control over what's happening, yeah. and we don't. Yeah. But that's hard to admit because that leaves a lot of people feeling really vulnerable. So what we like to do, what we are have an inclination to do is try to talk people out of their pain or their discomfort. And that is a huge mistake because basically what you're telling the person is that they're crazy. Yeah, because the only people that have feelings that are not connected to reality are people that are uh, schizophrenic or bipolar, which is a definition of really profound mental illness. Yeah. So if you you know try to tell somebody they shouldn't feel the way they do, you basically tell them they're nuts. Yeah. And, and that doesn't help anything. It just makes that person feel more ashamed of themselves. Uh, because there are all kinds of symptoms that develop as a result of trauma. It's it's not hard to see and understand once you're uh, accustomed to what to look for. Because trauma shows up in people's eyes. It shows up in their musculature. It shows up in their breathing patterns. Um, you'd be surprised how many times people hold their breath when I'm talking to them about certain things. Hmm. And I, I interrupt the conversation and say, do you realize you're holding your breath right now? And then most of the time the person says, no, I had no idea. And I said, well, that's your body's way of telling me that what we're talking about is really traumatic for you. Yeah. Because holding your breath is a way of being still in order to survive. Yeah. So there's a lot of clues that we exhibit that most people are not aware of. Okay. Yeah, what you said about basically not invalidating people when they're experiencing something. I, I've had my uh, struggles with depression in my life, and I know one of the worst things that you can do to say to somebody who is experiencing depression is tell them why they shouldn't be depressed. Because <laughs> then sorry, they just feel I... ashamed of being depressed even more. Well, and it's also ridiculous because uh, the last time that willpower overcame depression was never. Yeah. It's not the right, it's not, it doesn't work. 
people never get over depression by telling themselves they have no reason to be depressed. Yeah. It's insulting yeah. and it's degrading because you, you, did you like your depression? Was that something you were enjoying when you were happy? I'm sorry. Yeah, definitely but, not. Depression feels horrible. Yeah. And most people would do almost anything not to experience clinical depression. So when you're suffering from it, for people to try to convince you you shouldn't feel that way, they're not doing that to help you. They're doing that to try to make themselves feel better so that they don't have to worry about their depression. Yeah. And that's disrespectful as far as I'm concerned because, you, you know, you're not choosing to be depressed. And thinking positively is only going to make you feel worse because it's not real. Yeah. You can't think positively when you're suffering from depression. Yeah, definitely. So with people that have experienced trauma, um, my understanding is sometimes they have trouble experiencing both pain and pleasure, like letting themselves experience those feelings. So if that's the case, how can somebody regain their ability to experience those emotions and just experience them fully? Um, you know, that's a really, really good question. There's a fellow who came to see me recently, and um, the way that he learned to cope with the trauma that he suffered from was just to completely shut himself down and try to convince himself that his parents being at war with each other as a, when he was a little kid wasn't that big of a deal. And that why was he making such a big deal about it? Except that everybody around him kept saying to him, you know, you don't seem like you're here when you're here. You, you don't seem like you're anywhere when you're, when you're with us. You're like kind of checked out all the time. Yeah. And the problem is that you can't selectively uh, repress your feelings because your feelings are like the fingers on your hand. You, you can't decide not to be sad and have all the other feelings stay awake inside of you. Because all of your feelings are a form of passion and an expression of your, of your, your, your life in a certain way. So, um, yeah, your feelings become blunted when you're in survival mode, which is what trauma does to us. It puts us in a constant state of survival mode. Yeah. So, how do you how do you recommend people break free from that? If, if they're, I mean, if they're just going numb in situations that they should be experiencing, I mean, sometimes you need to experience pain too, right? right. Especially That's pleasure, true. if they're not finding pleasure in the things that they should. Well, you know, Artie, what I ask people to understand is that your symptoms are a form of communication again. So if you have a symptom of going numb under certain circumstances, instead of wondering what's wrong with you, it's way better to wonder how come what I'm experiencing right now is so overwhelming to me that I can't be here. Because that way of looking at it is a way of having compassion for what it is that might be haunting you as opposed to saying, what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah. Or taking it out of yourself or looking at yourself like you're the problem. Because the trauma that most people suffer is not something that they cause in any way. And that I'm um, coming to terms with what happened to you and a lot of times what didn't happen for you, not being properly protected, um, once you understand that those things are not about you, uh, they're about the failure of the people around you, it's, it becomes easier to sort of give yourself a break yeah. and stop blaming yourself and stop hating yourself and stop feeling so ashamed of yourself. Because, um, because that's what we do as children to survive. But once we become an adult, those survival mechanisms no longer serve the purpose that they did to help us through our childhood. And I think once people understand that, they're able to have more compassion toward themselves and 
and not take out everything that's happening as a sign that there's something wrong with them. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, do you mind if I say one last, another yeah, thing? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't even tell you how many people come to see me and say, there's something wrong with me. I'm not a happy person. And there is a misnomer, in my opinion, in our world that there is such a thing as a happy person. Uh, because you cannot be a feeling, and happiness is a feeling. But we are so programmed by our society that we should just be happy all the time, no matter what. And that is actually humanly impossible. Yeah. Because you cannot be a feeling. And so when people say, you need to help me be a happy person, I tell them I can't help them because there's no such thing. You can't even imagine what a relief it is for people to understand that they have not failed because in quotes, they're not a happy person. Because the whole goal in life is to, to cruise in neutral so that you can create joy and deal with the, the hardships that life has to offer. Now, hopefully you spend way more time creating joy than you do dealing with hardship. But the only time you're ever going to feel happy is if you're doing something or experiencing something that gives you joy. And it's such a relief to people to realize that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're not, in quotes, a happy person. Um, and th that myth has so pervaded our culture in a way. And I think it's personally designed to make people feel bad so that they buy stuff they don't need. It keeps our economy going. Yeah. Because a lot of times people medicate themselves by buying things they don't need or by drinking too much or by eating too much or all the different ways that we try to overcome this the shame that we have that we're not happy, as an example. So once people understand that there's no such thing, I can't even tell you what a relief it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, again, I agree. I, I don't think anyone is just completely happy all the time. I don't think that exists. It's insane. It's such a ridiculously destructive concept. Yeah. Because it does not take into account that nobody gets a life without pain. No one. I would love for you to find me somebody who's not experienced pain in the course of their life. Yeah. That's just insane. Yeah. In situations where someone experienced trauma at the hands of somebody else, um, uh -huh. what do you, what's your opinion on confronting that person? Is that a good idea? Is it very situational or how should people navigate considering something like that? Um, I never encourage anybody to confront their abuser or neglector until they've done enough therapy to uh, heal a great deal of their pain. Because if you do it prematurely, um, sometimes it can backfire. So the, the idea about whether you need to do it or not to heal, that's very individual. I've known some people that have confronted their abusers. Um, I would say nine out of 10 times, the people that abused them denied it mm. and told them they were crazy. Um, on occasion, I've had miraculous things happen where uh, a child, adult child may um, you know, uh, confront their parent. I had a guy actually fly from uh, Connecticut to California to be in my office with his daughter uh, to, on his hands and knees, beg her forgiveness for sexually abusing her as a child. Mm -hmm. That was amazing, but that rarely, rarely happens. Um, there's another woman that I'm working with whose father started raping her when she was two, and the father still lives with the mom, and the mom doesn't understand why the daughter never comes home. Yeah, Because the mom says, well, he doesn't do that anymore. You're an adult. Why are you holding this against him? 
And, you know, I'm thinking, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're living with somebody that raped your daughter yeah. and you're shaming your daughter for that. But you'd be surprised how often that happens, that that certain people blame their kids for being abused in some fashion. They asked for it or they did something, you know. There's a lot of... Yeah. You said nine out of, time, nine out of ten times um, the person who delivered the trauma to somebody else will deny it. Uh, what does that do to the person who experienced the trauma if they confront the person and it's just denied? Does that set them well, back? It's quite painful. It's painful. I'm not going to say it's not. I mean, I know that the woman I'm thinking about right now, who whose father started raping or stepfather started raping her when she was about seven, uh, told her that she was crazy and made the whole thing up. Yeah. But she was able to stand in front of him and tell him that she know she knows what the truth is, and he can pretend like it didn't happen, and that you know she said whatever she needed to. I'm sure it wasn't very kind. And she left feeling a little bit better, even though he didn't take responsibility. But she didn't expect that he would. Okay. So it depends on what your expectations are also. Okay. So it seems like setting the right expectation for the situation is pretty important then. Really important. Okay. But I'll tell you, I've worked with people that have been abused by mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles and grandparents and teachers and clergy, you name it. And it, and I know that we mostly think that men are the perpetrators uh, of sexual abuse, but that's actually not true. Hmm. I would say it's primarily maybe 60, 40 men, but I can't tell you how many people I've worked with who were sexually abused by, uh, by women in their lives, both men and women. What's, it's kind of shocking. So with sexual abuse specifically... What actually motivates it? Because from my understanding, it's not necessarily always like a, a sexual attraction. It, it's right. it, it's different things, control or power. Um, what are the typical motivations of the perpetrator in that instance? Well, if the perpetrator is a child, which I know is an odd concept, but I can't tell you how many children who have been abused end up abusing other kids. Because, again, if we speak about it from a sexual perspective, you lose your neutrality when you have a sexual experience as a kid. So you either become hypersexual or hyposexual, kind of shut down or, or promiscuous. And I've worked with some families where some member of the family as a kid got abused and then he started abusing other, other children in the family. Hmm. That's a really sad situation because it's usually it's because something happened to that person. On occasion, there was somebody who was born a sociopath, somebody without conscience and just what you might think of as an evil person. I have not been able to explain to myself why somebody like that uh, becomes a predator, except to say that they don't have a conscience. Mm. Because one person I actually uh, had the displeasure of meeting, you know, he started raping his brother and sister when they were very, very young. And, you know, I asked him why he did it. And he said, well, my dad had, you know, penthouse and Playboy magazines at his office. And I thought to myself, well, if every young, you know, teenager uh, became a perpetrator because of those magazines, we'd all be perpetrators, right? There's a natural curiosity now yeah. with the internet, and we don't even have magazines anymore, but um, um, that's not what creates a perpetrator. Usually it's something that happened to that person, but not always. Sometimes it's just that the person is really damaged. Mm on a personality disorder level. Okay. 
So sometimes or oftentimes the people who perpetrate trauma and abuse to other people have experienced some kind of trauma or abuse in their own lives. How do how do you balance that as a clinician if somebody has both perpetrated it and experienced it? Well, I, I don't work with perpetrators, generally speaking, okay. because it's really, really hard for me to do that. Mm. I have done it on occasion when the person sincerely wants forgiveness from his or her children. So I kind of stay away from working with perpetrators because sometimes it's hard for me to believe that their their um, uh, their apology is real. Okay. So I mostly work with people who have been victimized. Okay. Sometimes though. I mean, are are they having some people who have been victimized? Maybe they're not abusing or something else, but they're having other areas of their life not, I mean, kind of come apart, having things go wrong. Um, I'm I'm sure some of them feel shame or guilt about what they are doing in their current lives. So how do you balance that? Like, you're not a bad person, things happen to you, and you can change your behavior. Well, I worked with a, a woman who came to see me once because um, she walked into the garage and saw her father molesting her daughter. Mm. And she obviously felt horribly guilty about allowing this man to abuse her daughter. But part of what came to her is that in seeing the, the uh, sexual abuse happening, that was the first time in her life she remembered her own father molesting her. So seeing it happen to her daughter reminded her of it happening to her. So we did a lot of therapy, uh, me and the mom and the daughter, together, so that the mom could do the best she could to support her daughter and help her daughter understand that she was blind to it because of what happened to her. Not that that's an excuse, but it is an explanation, and it makes it a little bit easier to forgive somebody that allows something to happen to you if they, if, you know... If, you know, it just makes it a little bit easier under the circumstances. So I do my, my best to try to help people recognize that, you know, some of the ways that they mistreat their family is, unless they're doing it on purpose, that's a different story altogether. If they're willfully abusing someone, they deserve to be punished for that. Yeah. If they're not doing it willfully but out of ignorance, then restitution is the best way to help somebody that you have hurt as a child. Okay. So you've been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years. How has our understanding of trauma evolved over the span of your career? Um, and what key insights do you think society still needs to grasp? Oh, man, that is such a loaded question, Artie, because if, and again, is it okay if I talk about politics for a Oh, moment? yeah, I'll go for it. Um, when Donald Trump was president, he, in my mind, was the most frighteningly mental, uh, mentally ill person that's ever been in a position of power in my lifetime because he is what I would call a malignant narcissist. And what that means is that not only is, does he have a grandiose view of himself, but he also really, really enjoys hurting people to make himself feel better, Okay, which is one of the most dangerous types of people in the world. You know, anybody that's a dictator like Putin and those other people in the world that really enjoy hurting other people are malignant narcissists and they are incredibly inherently dangerous people. So regardless of what your politics are, because I don't really think that that was the issue, the, the fact that people 
allowed themselves to be seduced by such a dangerous person was really frightening to me. Because what it showed me is that so many people are so desperate for a savior that they're willing to put up with unconscionable behavior in the hopes that this person would save them. Because if you look at the United States, again, I live in California, you know, it's a fairly prosperous place. You know, people, relatively speaking, live fairly good lives here. In the town that I live in, half the, um, uh, on the main street, half the buildings are empty, but they're not empty because there's no economic base. They're empty because there are so many rich people that own those buildings that they don't care if their uh, vacancies are filled. Yeah. Because they just write it off as a loss on their billionaire tax, whatever. But in most of America, empty storefronts are a sign that the, there is no economy. And, and so you, you walk in there as a, like when Clinton was running, we all got to work together to solve our problems, right? How is that going to work with people who are so desperate and feel so disenfranchised because they've already tried everything they can? Yeah. There is no hope in most of those places. And so then you have a savior walk in the door and said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it for you. I'm just going to bring this country back in a way that it's never been. And, and you'll see how wonderful I am. And I'll save you. Just sit back and relax. Who are you going to vote for under those circumstances when you're maybe not very well educated and you're so desperate that the only hope you have is to be saved by someone who marches into town and tells you they're going to take care of it for you. So, and, and again, we are all taught to hate each other in that, um, you know, when, when he was president, you, you have to hate the people that don't agree with you and you have to hurt the people that don't agree with you. And I think that appeals to the four-year-old in all of us. Right? Find me a four-year-old that doesn't want to get revenge when his or her needs are being uh, <laughs> you know, compromised in some way. We all got a little kid inside of us that wants to hurt somebody that's hurting us. And I think that people that are really evil in that way prey upon that aspect of all of us. So I'm kind of long, in a long way, long-winded way telling you that I don't think things have gotten much better, actually. I think a lot of ways have gotten much worse because of the desperation. Right. The other day, somebody broke into a store a hundred miles away from here. Like fifty people broke in and just stole everything they could get their hands. That's not a common occurrence in the past, but it's becoming really common because people have been told that there are no consequences for their behavior and they should just take what they want. And if anybody gets in their way, just hurt them. And that—that's all the result of, of uh, having people that encourage us to not have a conscience and not be responsible for our behavior. So that kind of yeah. stuff scares me. With that, I do believe Trump is a narcissist, but I believe we're our political class is full of narcissists. Am I wrong? Oh, without a doubt. Okay. Without a doubt. Okay. But there are different kinds of personality disorders in the category of being a narcissist. You can be a grandiose narcissist, mm -hmm. and uh, you, your audience may hate me for saying this, but if you think about what kind of president that um, Obama was, he loved the adulation, and he loved yeah. everybody thinking he was the smartest guy in the world and how wonderful he was. But when it came to fighting a battle, pretty much he backed away. You know, he could have prevented Roe versus Wade from being, um, you know, uh, turned over if he appointed the Supreme Court justice that he was allowed to before he left presidency. But he didn't feel like fighting. So he just let go, thinking that maybe Clinton was going to come in and she would do it or whatever. 
but he didn't want to fight because fighting to him makes him look bad. So he's like the grandiose variety of a narcissist, which most of them are. They're dangerous in the way because they're very self-serving, but they don't go out of their way to hurt people on purpose. That's the the malignant variety, which is a whole other category altogether. Yeah, I guess I would kind of disagree. I do think a lot of those politicians do want to hurt people. I just think Trump is not... He doesn't hide it. I feel like the other ones, the other ones are like the other ones will screw you over and they'll make themselves look good while doing it. Trump will call you names like a four-year-old, you know? Right, right. Yes. And and again, I'm not letting anybody off the hook because I can't imagine why anybody would want to be a politician in the first place unless they have a you know, something really wrong with them to want that kind of attention. But, you know, that's getting off at a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother area of concern. Yeah. So what are some of the common misconceptions about trauma that you've encountered and how can we work to dispel them? Well, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people get over it over the course of time. And that is absolutely not true. Mm. Unless you deal with it, it stays with you for the rest of your life. I met a guy about 10 years ago. He was in a car accident. He was driving a van by himself. The van got flipped over um, by somebody cutting him off, and he flew off the road in his van into the bushes, and nobody could see him. So he was in the van upside down for about two or three days before they figured out where he was. When the paramedics came and opened up the door to the van, he was mumbling, how are my guys? How are my guys? And the paramedics are like, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no guys here. There's nobody but you. But what happened was that he went back into World War II mm, okay. as a result of that. And he was in his 80s. Yeah. And his job in World War II was sitting in the gun turret on the bombers that flew from England to Germany. Okay. Remember those glass turrets that they would sit in? Not the safest place to ride in an airplane when you're dropping bombs during the war. But the, the worst part of it was those airplanes were not properly designed. So nine out of ten times when they got back to England, they crash-landed because hmm. the landing gear wouldn't go down. Interesting. But we were in such a hurry to put those airplanes into production that they weren't properly tested. So what this guy said is he just stopped introducing himself to his other crew members because so many of them died on the way home. Oh, wow. And he never talked about any of this. He never told anybody any of this. He spent most of his life overusing alcohol. And only when he got in the car accident in his 80s did all of this stuff just come pouring forward. And that was 60 years or more of post-traumatic trauma that lived inside of his body. It never goes away. So really important for people to understand that you can't talk yourself out of it. You can't make your symptoms go away. The The only possibility is having the courage to deal with it. So my grandpa was a World War II vet. He was in the 101st Airborne. And, you know, I, I have grandparents. I have parents. I, I've seen different generations. How do the different generations respond to trauma um, as far as you've seen? Are, are different generations not as good at addressing it? Uh, well, I would say that the older a person is, uh the more unlikely it is that the person will recognize that they have post-traumatic stress. I mean, it didn't really even come into it. I mean, people used to talk about shell shock, you know, in World War II. But really, it wasn't until a lot of people that came back from Vietnam with horrible symptoms that the idea of post-traumatic stress became much more uh, 
well-known. Um, but even then, the way that we handle homeless veterans in our world is so unconscionable, it's ridiculous, because I would say that, that most of them suffer from post-traumatic stress, and that's how they end up on the street, because they just can't function. And it turns out that actually more people died from suicide uh, that were in Vietnam that died in the war. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that is a really horrible thing if you think about it, that like sixty-five to 70,000 people that were in Vietnam killed themselves, and only about 60,000 people died in the war. So that's how much trauma these people came home with. And um, I was of draft age when I was ending high school. Luckily, they ended the draft right when I would have become uh, you know, available. But the way that those soldiers were treated when they came home, they were spit on and screamed at and, and blamed for, for the war. It was really horrible. So I think that that's kind of sealed their fate in a lot of ways. Moving forward, people that have been injured in you know, Iraq or Afghanistan and other conflicts we've been in, there's a lot more people that have survived because of the advances in medicine, but they're surviving with much, much worse injuries than anybody ever uh, recovered from before. And so the the idea of post-traumatic stress is much more visible and much more recognized. Although I will say a lot of people don't want to, they don't want to admit it because it, in their mind, it's a sign of weakness. Yeah. And people that go into the military are probably more likely to value toughness, um, both mentally and physically. So I'd imagine they're less likely to want to admit that they've experienced trauma because they see it as a weakness. Well, and a lot of people that go into the military or into police work or whatever um, have not had the best childhoods that you could ever imagine. I know I'm making a huge generalization, but most of the police that I've worked with, as an example, absolutely had the shit beaten out of them as children. And they became policemen because they wanted to feel like they had control over bad people. And so it was a way of kind of overcompensating for the weakness of being an abused child. I mean, there's a guy who came to see me once who was working in downtown LA as a, a regular beat cop. And he said, if I stayed one more day, I would have killed somebody for sure. Mm. Because they were instructed every day to take out their batons and beat the crap out of everybody in the neighborhood to keep them in order. And this was during the Rodney King days before there were cell phones or video cameras. So yeah. um, they could get away with all the brutality that they wanted to. And he said, I had to leave because I would have been in jail as a murderer because we were encouraged every day to, to just beat the crap out of everybody we could get our hands on. So th there's a reason why everybody chooses the profession that they do as far as I'm concerned. That it, you know, a lot of it has to do with trying to find a safe way to live. So that if, you, if you're in law enforcement or, or you know, as a first responder, it's used because you feel a really strong need to take care of people and also to feel like you have some sort of control over the bad things that are happening in the world. And that primes you for having post-traumatic stress. Yeah. I've never been a police officer, so I can't know this for sure, but it seems like they do have psychiatrists on hand for at least certain situations. Like if, if an officer has to use their gun or something like that, are police departments largely failing to fully address mental health? Well, I think so, but I, I think it's also because if you avail yourself to mental health in a way where people in your squad room or whatever know, you know, you're a pussy. They don't, there's no room for acknowledging your feelings when you're 
doing that kind of work. Yeah. So it, it's inherently um, the lack of privacy and the, and the way that you know those cultures look at mental health treatment is not positively. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you know, I don't know what the uh, the solution is. Yeah. Look, I can barely tell people what I do for a living without clearing out a room most of the time. <laughs> Interesting. Because when I tell people what I do, they get scared and want to get away from me as quick as they can. Why is that? Do and they I, think they're you're going to analyze them and figure uh-huh. them out? Yeah. No, I'm not going to tell you it's everybody, but I will say that it's way more than not. I mean, my wife and I joke sometimes. We went to a bed and breakfast a couple of years ago, and you know, in the afternoon they do the wine sort of everybody hanging out together thing. And we walked in the room, and there were three other couples there, and we were walking through the door. And my wife said, "How long do you think it's going to take before you empty out the room?" Yeah. And I said, "Ten minutes." Because, you know, men, they, we're not going to ask each other how big each other's penis is because that would be rude. So the question we ask is how big your wallet is, yeah. right? And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, fuck, here we go. Yeah, I'm an attorney, I'm a this, I'm a that. And then they look at me and I say, well, I'm a psychologist. Dead silence. And within five minutes, everybody said I had somewhere to go. Yeah. And that's a really common experience for me. Um, I was actually having cancer surgery on my nose and I had a drape over my face and I'd never met the surgeon before because his wife of the dermatologist and her assistant, and, you know, they're working on me and they're super friendly. And then I knew the question was coming. What do you do for a living? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. And we were joking. And she said, why not? Are you a proctologist? I said, no, it's much worse than that. <laughs> and she said, what are you talking about? I said, I'm a psychologist. Dead silence. It was another word spoken through the whole rest of the procedure, and she couldn't get me out of the room as fast and faster. Oh, that is funny. And I had I had a drape over my eyes, so I couldn't even look at her to scare her. Yeah, if you know what I mean. So, I would say most people would like to avoid dealing with the secrets that they have and the shame that they carry. Okay. Um, I asked you about your experience. As a clinician, have you? So you run a podcast, the Fear Me Out podcast, um, uh-huh. which I've listened to a few episodes, and I will be adding that to my podcast list going forward. It's a very good podcast. Oh, You're very kind. Um, when did you start that? Was that 2020? It's been, it's been about uh, a year and a half, or maybe a, a little more than that. Okay. Have you learned anything from the podcast that you missed during your clinical years? Or in uh, clinical work. I have actually. It's a great. That's a really good question because um, I'm 68, and I started all of this when I was like you know, maybe 66 or so, and I figured that I was on the downslope, and that um, you know I could retire if I wanted to, but I like what I do too much, so I'm not going anywhere. Um, but I never imagined that I would find something that would give me so much joy. Mm. Um, and I started the podcast with a friend who has since left, but. Um, uh, the first thing that I will tell you is I've never had so much fun as I do when I do my podcast. Yeah. It yeah. is such a lovely experience uh, meeting people like yourself. Yeah. Um, and I talk to people all over the world. Um, and it's amazing to meet people that um, actually care and are trying to make a difference and are doing the best they can to be of service and so on and so forth. And it's just so satisfying uh, for me to do that. Plus, my clients have told me for years, you should write a book. People should know about the kind of therapy that you do. Um, I'm kind of lazy. 
Um, we, I did start a book with my friend Kim that left the podcast, so that's kind of on hold. But the podcast is all about disseminating the information, I think, that can help people who will never find their way into my office. Yeah. Because, you know, I can only see a certain number of people. Most of the people that listen to the podcast, I don't know. Um, last January, we got a note from a woman who said that we actually saved her life when she found the podcast. And she just happened to turn into an episode that was so inspiring to her that she didn't kill herself and, and, and kept herself going as a result of, of, to me, that was like, oh my God, that is so cool. Yeah. That we actually helped keep somebody alive just by disseminating information. And I just meet the most amazing people that talk about what they've gone through and how they're, how they're moving forward in life. And I've interviewed a lot of practitioners, um, in my town so that people know what a good therapist can bring to the table, what a good acupuncturist, what a good psychiatrist, what a, you know, what a good medical doctor, so on and so forth. Because I just want to educate people as much as possible of what to look for if they're looking for help. Yeah. And what, to, and, and what to, and how to understand that your symptoms are not who you are. You are not your symptoms. Right, and your your symptoms will resolve themselves when you deal with what created them in the first place, and who you are emerges more fully when you're not being held back by the things that happened to you and didn't happen for you. Yeah, and I just think that the podcast is a bigger way of kind of you know putting all these things out there. It was the reason I contacted you. Yeah. Because I want to promote what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. I've never done it before. I am probably the least technologically sophisticated person you've ever met. I'm not sophisticated at all. But I'm just trying to do my best to to help people as much as I can before someday I fall out of my chair and that's the end. Yeah. And the great thing about the podcast is it'll it'll live on, right? It's Yeah. um, It'll be available. And it can be listened to thousands, hundreds of thousands Uh of times versus... Yeah. You know, you can you only have so many hours in your day where you can meet with people. And obviously the person who wrote you saying that you saved their life, I mean, most likely you would not have seen them in your clinical work at all. You would never No, I don't even them. know who she is. She never even told us her name. Oh, yeah. 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 She just said, This is what I found and this is what happened. I thought, Oh my God, it's so sweet. Yeah. So when you're actually working with a, a client Trust is fundamental in those therapeutic relationships. Absolutely. So how do you establish trust with somebody who may have a history of mistrust because of traumatic experiences? Well, I would say that everybody comes in with uh, a certain level of distrust, as they should, because I see a ton of people that have seen other therapists before they find their way here. And they've been helped some to a certain degree, but they wouldn't be here if things were as good as they would like them to be. Yeah. So I always ask people to, you know, give me a chance and help me sort of explain my philosophy and what I bring to the table um, and to see whether it fits with what they're looking for. And I think people can pretty much figure out relatively quickly whether they've come to the right place. But I will say to you that I have the incredible blessing of being way busier than I would like to be. Um, I have a waiting list of people that would love to come and see me. That feels really good, but it also doesn't feel great because i got to say no. Yeah. But, but I would say that the lion's share of referrals that come my way come from satisfied customers that refer their friends and family. 
And I only work with people who I really, really like. Um, and so I'm really lucky in that regard because um, if I don't consider that you would be somebody who I'd want to have as a friend if I met you under different circumstances, I won't work with you. Okay. So it's really fun for me because I get to take great delight in the people that find their way to me because they're all the most incredibly amazing people in their own right. And so it's an absolute pleasure to work with them. Yeah. And that makes my job really easy and really fun because um, I'm not subject to the prejudice that you have against yourself, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I can see all the different aspects of you that are lovable, and I try to help you understand those things and recognize what you bring to the table. And I think that sometimes it's the first time in a person's life that somebody's actually really cared to listen to them and take them seriously and don't agree with them that there's something wrong with them and that they're actually a really lovely person. And then, you know, I will say sometimes people say, well, you just tell me that because I'm paying you. And, you know, I, I, what am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> yeah, you do have to pay me. But at the same time, I wouldn't feel any differently about you if you didn't pay me. Because yeah. that's not why I'm doing it. I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. It's a choice for me. So every day I walk up my stairs in my office, and I'm really lucky because behind me there is a 180-degree view of the ocean. So I have a really sweet environment that I, you know, that I work in. And so it's actually it's super pleasant. It's yeah. really lovely. Well, you mentioned that you wouldn't work with somebody that you couldn't see yourself being a friend with in another realm. Um, Can you become friends with a patient or is that a strict no? Um, I would say that it's a a very strict no in a lot of ways because um, the consumer in California is protected against any sort of exploitation, as they should be, because just because you're a therapist doesn't mean you have the same bone in your body. And every month I get a publication that talks about all the therapists who lost their license for, you know, driving drunk or having sex with their clients and all kinds of other things. And you think, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> right? But, you know, all therapists are human. Yeah. So it, there's no guarantee that, you know, any of us have a shred of sanity uh, just because the state of California is willing to give us a license. Yeah. So um, I just try to make it as sort of pleasurable and um and loving as possible i guess okay in that way but i you know people have said to me well why don't you come to my whatever i occasionally i'll go to a wedding because if i help the people get to a place where they want to marry each other i feel like it's respectful to honor their commitment in that way yeah um but i wouldn't go to somebody's birthday party as an example or out to dinner with them or any of that kind of stuff because I, I really, I'm super protective of the people that I see. Nobody knows they come here unless they tell them. Yeah. Okay. So I try to be really careful about that. Yeah. I like that you're um, picky with who you'll work with. Cause I, I feel like while therapy is helpful, not all therapists will match with an individual. So uh-huh. to look at that from the other side, how do you recommend a person who's seeking therapy find the right therapist for them? You know, that's a really good question. And if you want the long version of the answer to that question, there's an hour on my podcast all about how to find a therapist. Okay. Um, but the short version is um, to ask a lot of questions and see what it feels like to be in the person's presence. Um, like if you're looking for marriage counseling, as an example, which I do a fair bit of, I would say that in 35 years, two people have asked me if I'm married. And I think to myself, 
shouldn't that be like the first question you ask me is whether I'm capable of being in a relationship myself? Yeah. <laughs> because how can I help you if I'm a disaster? Yeah. Now, that's easy for me to laugh about because I've been married to the same person. I've been with the same person for 50 years. So I can proudly say that it appears as though she still loves me. God knows why. But <laughs> we have a really lovely relationship. So I feel like I have at least a certain amount of experience in, in a relationship that feels good to me. Um, but I'm stunned that people don't ask me that question. And I ask people, how come you didn't ask me if I'm married? And they say, well, we're not supposed to know anything about you. And I say, come on, man. You've got to know certain things. Otherwise, you should not put your trust in me. Yeah. Right? So ask a lot of questions. If you're coming for to work on your trauma, how much experience do you have as a therapist dealing with trauma? Have you had your own therapy? Because the biggest disaster is therapists who have not had enough of their own therapy. And to me, that's dangerous. Yeah. Because you can't help somebody any more than you've been able to heal your own self. Yeah. And I can tell you that before I remembered the sexual abuse that I suffered, I would, had only been a therapist for a relatively short while, but there were clues that people had given me that they were sexually abused that I didn't see mm. because of my own blindness. Yeah. And so after I came to understand what happened, I completely changed my view of uh, what to look for in helping someone. So it's really important that whoever you see has had their own therapy to the point where they really feel like they have their lives in relative order. Look, I'm not going to say I don't have problems. Everybody does. But I've done enough self-examination to realize, hopefully, what some of my problems are, yeah. <laughs> and and to try not, you know, to take those out on the people that I that I work with. Yeah. So, when somebody comes you, to you for trauma, um, what are the therapies that are possible, and which have you seen the most impact from, and how do you decide which therapies to use? Well, I I am a sort of um, I do things the way I do things because I find that it works. So I'm a big fan of hypnotherapy as a way of helping trauma. It's not really widely practiced where I live anymore. Most people do what's called EMDR. I don't know if you've heard of that, but um, it's, a, it's a different way of helping people resolve trauma. I interviewed a psychiatrist that does ketamine therapy okay. for people that are dealing with trauma and depression. Um, I've known some people that have benefited hugely. He did a beautiful job explaining ketamine therapy. Uh, I have clients that microdose um, psilocybin. I have other clients that actually do major journeys using psychedelics as a way of healing trauma. So there's all kinds of different ways that people go about, um, you know, coming to terms with what they come to terms with. But in my office specifically, um, I do regular talk therapy and lots of uh, hypnosis. Okay. You touched on ketamine and, and psilocybin. I was going to ask about that. So... Uh, do you see potential for those? Do you and the four that I, or I guess psychedelics is more of a broad category, but ketamine, marijuana, MDMA, and psychedelics. Could you go through those and tell me if you think they each have potential with trauma or other mental health aspects? Well, I think that psilocybin, in some ways, is actually kind of miraculous because I've known lots of people that um, took. Uh, um, you know, regular pharmaceutical medication for depression, which sometimes is quite useful. But some people get side effects that are really debilitating from those medicines. And some people just don't get any benefit from it. And what I've seen is that when people microdose, um, 
the benefits are amazing. Now, I can't uh, legally encourage people to do that. Yeah. So usually what I do is refer them to people in the community that are experts in that, um, in that arena. Luckily, there's a guy that I know in town, and he and his, I think it's his girlfriend, they are some of the smartest people I've ever met when it comes to um, using uh, psilocybin as a drug, both in a um, healing way and also in a microdosing way. Okay. Um, I think that that I've known people, and again, uh, I'm sorry to keep referring to my podcast, but oh, we actually did an episode on the podcast where my partner at the time went and did a huge dose of MDMA and LSD and spent the night with these two practitioners that uh, that were helping them come to terms with whatever he was looking for, and it was an incredible experience for him. Hmm. It really brought up some stuff that was really life-changing for him. And then they all came on the show and we all talked about, you know, what it was all about. Um, I'm not a giant fan of MDMA, I have to be honest with you, because in, in people that do it too much, it has, it has the propensity to cause uh, Parkinson's disease. Interesting. Because it is a really strong neurotoxin and it disrupts the dopamine receptors in our brain. Um, I think if you do it every once in a while, it's not the end of the world. I would never do it because I'm scared of messing with my old adult brain, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that there's a place for all of those drugs um, if under, under expert uh, care. Um, I, you know, I know there's lots of people that, and it's become vogue to do yeah. psychedelics now. And I think that that will, like anything that becomes the miracle, people will re- realize that there's no such thing, you know, that these things can all be used in combination with, with other things and that they have a purpose, but it's not going to be a magic yeah. solution. I've, uh, I have experience with psychedelics and MDMA and I would agree with you. MDMA is probably the one I would recommend avoiding for the most part. I did not use it clinically. I used it recreationally. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's pretty taxing on your body and it takes a long time to recover. You can be, especially if you have depression or anything like that, it it really, it takes a toll on you mentally. Well, it diminishes your neurotransmitters, which is not a good idea if you're suffering from depression. Yeah. And I know that for people that do uh, um, psilocybin, they have to go off their medication. And sometimes that's not the best thing in the world because sometimes you really do need the medicine in order to yeah. you know, keep your neurotransmitters at a place that gives you a sense of well-being. So it's a, it's a, it can be a bit dicey for some people. Yeah. Um, what, what's your view on traditional antidepressants and stuff like that for dealing with mental health issues and, and trauma? Uh, I would say that it has its place. There are psychiatrists I work with that I refer people to when it feels to me necessary um, because all the therapy in the world is not going to change your brain chemistry, in my opinion. And I think that brain chemistry plays a huge role in certain people's uh, experiences of anxiety and depression. So, you know, my job is to try to divine as much as I can which part of a person's uh, difficulties are from a clinical depression, which requires medicine, and which part is situational, which has to do with their life in general and having to do with, you know, how trauma has affected them. Okay. So I, I, I mean, I've seen miracles happen with um, traditional pharmaceutical medicine. 
I've had a couple strokes myself, sadly. And after the second stroke I had, I was completely paralyzed on my right side and, and couldn't speak for a short period of time. And I recovered really quickly, except I couldn't stop crying. Hmm, and I just thought, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I just couldn't stop crying for months. And I finally I thought, duh, it's my neurotransmitters that got all messed up by the brain injury of having a stroke. Yeah. So I started taking a really small subtherapeutic dose of um, Effexor, which is one of the antidepressants that are available. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're supposed to take 150 milligrams. I'd take 37 and a half. And it's been a miracle. It, mm. Within a couple of weeks, my wife said, oh, I got Dana back. Yeah. So not only from seeing other people, but my own experience having a head injury, it's really important when people suffer uh, head injuries to get their neurotransmitters addressed. And I can't even tell you how little that that happens. Yeah. Neurologists and other people that treat people with head injuries, they don't. it doesn't even occur to them that maybe some of their suffering has to do with the disruption of their neurotransmitters. Mm. Because I can't even tell you any people I said, you got to go consider getting on some medicine. And within weeks, they're like a completely different person because they never recovered from their concussion or their, or whatever brain injury they're suffering. Yeah. Interesting. So there's a place in my world for psychiatrists and acupuncturists and, you know, therapists and all the different, I'm open to all the different ways that people can, uh, you know, improve their lives to go back um just a minute um marijuana i don't think we talked about it too much yeah, do you, I didn't touch on do you feel yet. like that has therapeutic benefit uh i think it has recreational benefit i think it can help with chronic pain and appetite for people who sometimes lose their appetite when they're depressed the only thing that i'm worried about with marijuana is that some people smoke from the time they wake up till they go to sleep at night every day. Yeah. I don't think that does anybody any favors. I think if you use it recreationally, you know, a couple times a week or whatever, or you use it for sleep, I don't think it's a big deal. Yeah. But I think if you're using it all the time, it's like any other substance. It takes you away from who you are. And I just don't think that's a, a very healthy way to live. Yeah. But so does eating too much or drinking too much or working too hard or not exercising and all the different ways that, you know, I go to the park every morning to walk because I live by the ocean and it's so beautiful. But I can't even tell you how many people are in line at McDonald's and uh, 7-Eleven to get their breakfast at 6.30 in the morning compared to how many people are driving into the parking lot at the park to get exercise. Yeah. And I look around and think, oh, my God, these people are starting their day with sugar and fat and salt and grease. <laughs> How can they expect to live any kind of a life that's pleasurable? Yeah. But it's more the norm than what I'm doing. Yeah. Right? I'm going to exercise. Yeah. So uh, it's, that's a little scary. It's a line of McDonald's. And, uh, and I'm not, I've got nothing against McDonald's or any of those places, but I think it's a very sad way to start your day. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of anti-McDonald's. I haven't had McDonald's since 2014. I don't think I've had McDonald's maybe since I was like 10 or yeah. something. And I'm really old. So, what is, What's the connection between diet and mental health? Oh, I think there's a, huge, there's a lot of research now about gut being your second brain. And that good gut health is really important for good mental health. Um, the, I live in a community, and this is, a, again, a big generalization, where people have a tendency to be 
healthy. Generally speaking, there's a lot of people here that exercise and eat well and, and are very much motivated to self-care. And I tell people if they want to heal from depression, as an example, that you've got to get proper sleep if you can. You have to eat lots of protein because protein builds neurotransmitters. Um, you have to try not to eat a ton of sugar, right? You have to do the therapy, and and if you need medicine, take the medicine because it's a, it's a you know it's a combination of all those different things that are really important for people to. And the more sensitive you are as a person by nature, because some people are just inherently more sensitive uh, emotionally than others, mm-hmm. the more self care you need in order to thrive. Okay. And I just happen to see a ton of really sensitive people. They find their way into my life for whatever reason, maybe because I understand it from my own my own weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of sensitivity, um, empathy, and um, stuff like that, intuition is pretty important. How do you? And I know you've talked about intuition on your podcast a bit. How does somebody get in touch with their intuition if they don't consider themselves intuitive naturally? You know, that's, again, a really good question. What I ask people to do, and now that we have technology at our fingertips, is to set an alarm on their clock, I mean, on their phone, every hour. And when the alarm goes off, just to ask yourself, how am I feeling right now? Yeah. What am I feeling right now? So that you can start to develop a really intimate relationship with what you're feeling in any moment. Because that's the beginning of how you come to recognize that your intuition it's always there. And the only reason that people don't feel it is because either they don't trust it or they don't really understand that it is a sacred part of their existence that deserves um, to be treated with the utmost regard. Um, I will say a lot of people are, have a hard time distinguishing between fear and their intuition. And that takes a lot of practice. That takes asking yourself, okay, I'm really scared right now. Can I sort of intuitively feel what's happening despite the fact that I'm scared. Now, I take it to a different level on a personal level because um, my personal belief is that that intuition is God's voice inside of us and that not a religious God because I don't aspire to any religious philosophy, but uh, I believe that there is such a thing as God and that God is always there to help us in our lives and that most people say, well, I pray, but I don't ever get an answer. And my response to that is, well, do you listen to your intuition? No, because I can't prove it, or I don't know if it's right or wrong or whatever. And I say, well, that's God's voice speaking to you directly, yeah. if you're willing to look at it from that perspective. Some people are okay with that idea. A lot of people have been traumatized in the name of God, so it doesn't go over really well for somebody who's been you know, mistreated in a religious context. But, in, you know, I try to help people understand that God and religion are only slightly related yeah. in my cynical view. So um, I think that, that your intuition is a sacred part of your existence. And I will tell you that the more people learn to trust what they feel and really come from that place, the better their lives become, infinitely better. And I also believe that, that God is kind of in charge of helping us release the pain of our trauma. And it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. I'm not sitting around trying to, you know, convince people that, you know, to believe in God because that's not my, you know, it's not my place. Yeah. But that doesn't mean on a personal level I'm not sort of trying to help people understand that there is a force in the universe that can help you heal if you're willing to allow it. I like that. Because I kind of look at God as being like electricity. 
you know, the plug is always there. The electricity is always there. But you can't know it unless you plug in. Yeah. And so really, the only time you don't feel is when you're unplugged. When you're what? When you plug in. Yeah, if you don't plug it in, you don't know electricity exists. It's just a concept. Yeah. But if you plug something in and you turn it on, you know that there's such a thing as electricity, even though it's invisible. So it's kind of one of the ways I ask people to think about it if they're really. Okay. So technology and social media have kind of changed the way we experience trauma and society at large. What are the potential drawbacks and benefits of these platforms in the context of psychological healing? Boy, you know, I am not a huge fan of cell phones and all of that stuff because it wasn't part of my life growing up. It's something that came in when I was old. (laughs) So I, I don't have a passion for it. I see how it disconnects people and how it hurts people in terms of uh, comparing yourself to other people and and that it creates such a false reality. But I will say that there's a positive side to it because I wouldn't have found you if there wasn't such a thing as Facebook. So it's, uh, uh, in my mind, if you use it sparingly, because I only use it for one purpose, and that is to um, kind of spread the word about my podcast and, and find people to be on my podcast and to be on other people's podcasts. Otherwise I have no use for it because I, I, you know, it's just not my deal. Yeah. And I do think it causes a lot of harm. And, and I will say again, on my podcast, we interviewed two 14 year old, uh, one man and one woman about the role of social media and all of the stuff that's played in their life. And it was quite fascinating to hear their, their take on how much time they spend and how it affects them mostly in negative ways Hmm. because it's a great shaming tool. Yeah. Really good at making people feel inferior and, and again, want to buy shit they don't need and make themselves look like somebody else so that because you're taught that the way you look inherently is not okay. Um, It drives me crazy when I go in a restaurant, I see two people sitting across from each other on their phones instead of talking to each other because I think this is the downfall of our world. Yeah. Because I am a big guy that believes in connection. And anything that disrupts human connection is something I have a lot of trouble with. Um, But I also know it serves a purpose. And I'm really, really worried about AI because I've been doing a lot of reading and uh, listen to a lot of podcasts about it. And I don't don't think we have any idea how powerful it is and how much it's going to change our lives. Can you dive into that a little bit? I'm, I'm interested in this topic quite a bit, so... Well, I think in some ways it's going to help in terms of medicine and all that kind yeah. of stuff. But, I mean, if think, think about being a kid in high school or whatever, and you got to write a paper. I've tried it. you just got to feed the information there. It makes you sound like a genius. Yeah. I mean, it's really amazing, actually. I think, oh, my God, I sound really smart. <laughs> but it's not me. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it creates a certain amount of dishonesty. And, and that's just on that baby level. I mean, I read about this woman recently who's super attractive and very sexually provocative on the internet. And she has a lot of followers because she's, you know, um, I think a lot of adolescent guys like looking at her. And and, and she started a, a platform where you can talk to her about anything you want to. Yeah. But what she did was create an artificial version of herself on her platform. So the people that are calling her think they're talking to her. But they're not. Hmm. They're talking to a recording that she made of herself on AI. 
and she's telling these guys how handsome they are and that she's the, they're their her only one and you know feeding them all the shit that feeds into their fears of of you know their inadequacy and all this stuff making fifty thousand dollars a month Jeez. doing nothing yeah. because she set it all up she's a genius i, I had got a hand it to her it was really smart but at the same time how sad is it that um people think they're actually talking to her and they're not they're talking to a, a version of her that's created you know in the cloud or wherever all this shit lives yeah and uh, she was just you know one of the first people to figure out how to use it to her benefit yeah. So I think a lot of people are actually going to lose their jobs, and I think it's going to shift things in a major way. But, you know, this is not the first time that's ever happened. I mean, in my lifetime, four-track tapes turned into eight-track tapes, turned into CDs, turned into digital media. I mean, there's always something that's coming along that revolutionizes the way we live yeah. in the world. And so I think it's a matter of adapting and hopefully trying to figure out a way to use it, you know, for the yeah. good. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there are a lot of dangers when it comes to AI. There's definitely benefits too, but I'm a little bit worried that we're not. I think the people that are in the AI industry that are actually making things are so excited about what they make that they're probably, I know that they try to keep it unbiased and everything. I don't think it's even possible. I don't like if you're a human, everyone has some kind of bias. So if you're programming something, it seems only natural that that program is going to have some of that bias, even if it's unintentional. So, and then, you know, you can, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. You can have AI completely change the outcome of elections because Uh of the information that that it's disseminating prior to an an election. Um, Well, it's already happened. I think that the reason Brexit came into... uh, uh, um, the United Kingdom is because Russia wanted to destabilize Western Europe. And so they fed all kinds of propaganda to the people that live in Britain about how uh, Brexit is going to change their lives and make it better. And I have some clients that live in London, and it is a disaster economically. Yeah, It has really destroyed their economy in such horrible ways. And um, I think it's all part of the Again, my conspiracy theory that, that the malignant narcissists are really good at disrupting our uh, safety and our security in the world. I'm happy that you brought up malignant narcissists again because I actually have a question about this. I have a hypothesis of my own um, that sociopaths and psychopaths and malignant narcissists have an advantage in um, high stakes positions. Um, oh, without a doubt. Like they, they can become CEOs, they can become high level politicians because they don't they don't suffer any regret or, or yeah, you don't have a conscience. Yeah, I mean, think about what it'd be like if you didn't have a conscience. Yeah, you never felt guilty about anything. Yeah, the only time you do anything good is if you wanted people to like you. Yeah. So how how do people who have a conscience? beat those people out of positions like how how can we retake Uh, society like have empathetic people people who care about the world get in those positions like replace the people who don't add anything positive well i i think that if if we're talking about the people that are at the very very top 
that it's not possible to get there unless you uh, are broken. Yeah. Because it takes a certain lack of caring about other people to get to the very top. I mean, and again, I'm speaking in great generalization here, but the, the, a lot of the famous, like most famous people we know, they get there because uh, it's on top of other people. Yeah. Like a lot of the athletes that get there because they have no conscience and they want to destroy anybody that gets in their way. I think that there's a lot, a lot of people. I mean, if you think about entertainers as an example, uh, if you have a personality disorder, you don't have a sense of self. There's nothing inside of you that determines your identity. So somebody hands you a script, and if you're a good mimic, I'm not going to win an Academy Award. They will. Yeah. Because they can become what's on the page in a way that feels so convincing that you can't tell the difference between them and, uh, and the role they're playing. You and I tried to do that. Who we are would interfere with our ability. Despite the fact that we may be really talented, it's never going to be on the same level as somebody who has no identity in the first place. Yeah. Of course, those people end up in rehab all the time and get married 50 times and usually have very self-destructive lives because the incidence of substance abuse with personality disorders is about 80%. Okay. That's why so many super famous people go through rehab over and over again because okay. their insides are a disaster. But, you know, we adore those people. We want to be them. We think that they're the model of who we should aspire to, which is quite sad. But I will tell you that in my world, I, I see really wonderful people. Yeah. And a lot of them, because of the community I live in, are extremely successful. Now, they may not be the billionaires, but they certainly have more money than you could ever imagine. Yeah. And a lot of these people are trying really hard to do good. You would be surprised, actually, how many people that I meet that are very, very wealthy, that are trying really hard to be good people and to make a difference in the world. Yeah. But those people don't get noticed because they're not causing problems and they're not being dramatic and they're not saying stupid shit, you know, <laughs> on social media or whatever. Yeah. They're just living their lives and doing the best they can um, in a lot of ways. But um, I see a lot of people, at least in the community I live in, that are trying really hard to make things better. Yeah. That is good. How do and it's the oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say uh, um, the wealthier community, the more broken people that live in that community. The wealthier the because, community, the more broken people live in it? Yeah, because in order to get that kind of wealth, you can't be a normal person. Okay. You just can't because it takes too much of, of uh, a need to be powerful and admirable. Like, you know, who cares? Who needs that much money? Yeah. Who cares? I mean, at a certain point, what's it doing for you? Yeah. Other than making you feel like you're a special person and better than everybody else around you. Yeah. And and I, I mean, you look at that and it, it's kind of hard to understand why, not that billionaires don't help people. They, they clearly do sometimes, but yeah. It, it's hard to understand why people in those positions aren't even more generous because of how much they have. Well, again, there's a particular fellow who gave $25 billion to charity, right? How do you fault somebody that gives $25 billion to charity? Yeah. Uh, but my opinion about why he did it was because he was getting caught uh, by his wife for being unfaithful to their whole marriage. And then he spent a fair bit of time at uh, Jeffrey Epstein's Pearl Island having underage sex with girls. Yeah. 
So it, it's a good way of sort of <laughs> mitigating some of your despicable behavior by appearing to be a really generous uh, person that cares about the world around you. Yeah. But I think it's for appearance. I don't think it's because they care. Because when you're broken in that way, the only thing you care about is power and admiration. That's it. Nothing else matters. Yeah. For, you mentioned Jeffrey Epstein, and I know most abuse happens to people um, from other people in their lives already, but there are smooth-talking people who have ill intentions, who have nothing good to add to your life. How do... How do people recognize when somebody doesn't have anything good, like when they're just going to be destructive in their life? How do people recognize it before it gets to that point? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Because there, there is a book that I read that was written about 20 years ago called The Gift of Fear. And it's written by a fellow by the name of Gavin De Becker. And uh, I've tried really hard to get him to come on my podcast, but he won't respond in any way. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I don't promote his book because it's a he owns one of the most successful security companies in the world. So his job is protecting the wealthiest, most famous people on the planet. And he wrote a book about how uh, predators take advantage of their prey. And it's actually genius. I think every woman should read this book because he describes how predators take advantage of our good nature and our kindness and are really good at reading people who have been abused in the past and who are not likely to fight. Because I will tell you that a lot of times people that get abused in adulthood have a history of being abused as children. And perpetrators can feel who's going to fight and who's going to freeze because their whole survival depends on being a predator. Yeah. So this guy's book is amazing because he describes conversations um, that he has understood that, you know, how people, like, let me take your groceries upstairs. No, I got it. Oh, please, I'm just trying to be helpful. You know, try to make the person, the woman feel guilty that I won't let you take my groceries upstairs. Yeah. Right. And to try to trick you into being vulnerable to me so that when I get you in your apartment, I can rape you. And it's usually really nice people that get exploited because. How do we say no to somebody who's trying to be generous, as an example? Yeah. But I think if you let yourself be really in touch with what you feel and know, the chances of being harmed diminish exponentially. It's just that people don't listen. Yeah. We talk ourselves out of it. Um, I had, I had a, an experience when I was 45. Uh, I'm a surfer, and I, was, I went to go surfing. And getting to the beach with perfect waves and nobody around it was like being given free uh, high-grade heroin, right? Nothing better. So I'm standing there looking at the waves. They're stunningly perfect. There's nobody around. It's a beautiful, you know, January day. And I'm just getting ready to put my wetsuit on. And I get this feeling, don't go in the water by yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, fuck that. I don't, you know, this is like a dream come true. Yeah. My friends will get here. They're going to be here in 20 minutes or so. What's the problem? And I swear to you, it was like somebody was screaming at me at the top of my lungs. Don't go in the water by yourself. So after arguing with myself for about 10 minutes, I thought, fuck, okay, I'll wait. Yeah. So I waited for my friends to get there. We all put our wetsuits on. We all paddled into the water. And within 10 minutes, I had what would have been a fatal heart attack in the water. That's crazy. And I would have been dead for sure yeah. if I, my friends didn't save my life. And they only saved my life because we were all there together. 
So listening to my intuition didn't stop me from having a heart attack, obviously, but it kept me alive because I didn't put myself in harm's way with nobody to save me. Yeah. So that's kind of an example, a rather extreme example, of what I try to help people learn is that there is a connection that we all have that's life-affirming and trying to help us live our best life, both in ways of staying safe, but also in being more creative and, and, uh, and enhancing our lives in all kinds of different ways. But we have to be willing to get past our mistrust because of the exploitation that we experience and to realize that that you know, it's you don't need to be afraid of other people as much as you do need to be afraid of yourself. Yeah. Because if you're not being true to yourself and you're not listening to yourself, then of course other people are going to take advantage of you because you're setting the tone without realizing. Yeah. So you got to learn how to be really faithful to yourself, so that you then are not being un, you know treated unfaithfully by those around you. Because it starts with your relationship with yourself. At least that's my opinion about it. Okay. All gets down to how you feel about yourself deep down inside. Yeah. So getting in touch with your intuition um, seems to be vital to your survival, too. Um, That's right. Important to your survival. So is that what you would recommend to, say, somebody's high in agreeableness, um, which can be good, but it can also make them more susceptible to be taken advantage of? You would say intuition is probably what they need to focus on? Well, I can't tell you how many stories people have told me that um, that their intuition saved them. Yeah. And they're not listening to intuition caused horrible things to happen to them. Yeah. I can't even tell you how many people have described being exploited as young adults or, or you know, women in their 20s that got raped or whatever. And they had a feeling like they were putting themselves in danger. But the person was acting so kind and friendly or whatever that they talked themselves out of it, and the next thing they know, they were in a horrible, dangerous situation. Mm. Interesting. So trauma can be stigmatized or misunderstood. How do you suggest we foster a more empathetic and informed society when it comes to discussing trauma? Well, I think it starts with the knowledge that six out of ten men have something sexual happen to them as children. Hmm. Seven out of ten women have something sexual happen to them as children. Now, that ranges from fondling to rape. So there's a huge continuum. But I think that those statistics are underreported. Hmm, interesting. And that's just in the sexual arena. Yeah. I think when it comes to neglect and, um, and emotional neglect and abuse and physical abuse, it, it is so rampant in our society, it's ridiculous. And I think that most people don't want to believe that that's true. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, well, I thought everybody in my neighborhood had the shit beaten out of them when they were kids. Yeah, It's just so common. And in some cultures, it's even more common than others. And that, you know, if you think about some of the comedians and how they joke about, you know, you know, being hit as children and how funny it was and, you know, all that, I think to myself, you are doing such a disservice by, by making this funny instead of really understanding the impact that that abuse has had on you and your culture. Yeah. Because it's not okay. It's not okay to hate kids. It does nothing but make them hate themselves. It doesn't teach them anything other than self-loathing. But, you know, we try to minimize the impact by joking. And I'm a big joker. I love to laugh. And I don't think it's okay uh, to laugh about abuse. Yeah, I agree. Um, What would you recommend to people 
who want help, maybe they have trauma, maybe they have other psychological things that need work, but they see the cost of therapy is prohibitive. You know, that is a really difficult uh, issue. I'm not going to joke about that for sure, because I charge a lot of money. I don't think it's a lot compared to other maybe cities or whatever. So most people can, and maybe in Santa Barbara they could afford to see me, but a lot of people not so much. But there is a woman that I'm helping, um, and I always have one or two people that I help train to become therapists. And in the process of becoming a therapist, you have to do a lot of supervised hours. Um, There is one woman that I've been helping become a therapist who's immensely talented. And I refer people to her all the time. And the clinic that she works for right now is a nonprofit. And so they only charge people what they can afford. I don't know if these people realize how lucky they are to be working with her, even though she's not licensed, because her ability to be a therapist outshines most people that are licensed. So I don't think that it always has to be prohibited by uh, the cost, because there's a lot of people in training and in training institutes. Some of them are actually really, really good. And so you can go to your university or you can go to the psychological association or whatever and and ask. And, and you know, the most... Most people are referred by satisfied customers who refer their friends and family. So um, it's not completely impossible is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Because even in a place like Santa Barbara where um, it's insanely expensive to live here, there's still affordable therapy. Yeah. To kind of, I guess to kind of go back on an earlier question, um, to dive a little bit deeper in it, when you're choosing a therapist, does age matter? Like, do you want a therapist older, younger than you? Do you want someone of the same sex, opposite sex, or does that matter at all? Well, actually, everything you're saying matters a great deal because um, there are some teenagers that would not want to come and see me because I'm old. Okay. And what do I know about anything? Right. So um, sometimes when well, first of all, I won't see anybody that's not here in their own free will. And a lot of times teenagers um, are forced into therapy and I tell their parents, look, I'm not going to see your kid unless he or she wants to come. Yeah. Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. You know, and then the kid shows up looking at me like, um, I'm the dentist and I'm going to you know, hurt them in some way. That doesn't work so well. But I, I can't even tell you how many teenagers, they love therapy. They think it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, I try to bring humor into what I do because it helps people feel a bit more relaxed. But there are people that call me and say, hey, I want to see a woman. I would just feel more comfortable. So there's a couple of women that I refer to, and I completely respect the idea that if you want to see a woman, that that should be your choice. And there are some men who would prefer to see a man yeah, instead of a woman because they feel like maybe a man will understand them a little bit better. Now, I was brought up Jewish. Um, I don't practice my religion. It's not part of my life. But my last name is kind of a dead giveaway. So I would say that a fair number of Jewish people have found me and sort of come in with the understanding that I'm going to know things about where they come from that a non-Jewish therapist would not understand. And and they're right in a certain way, because I do know the culture, even though I don't practice the religion. So, you know, what you want to do is work with somebody that you feel comfortable with, because if you don't feel comfortable, there's something wrong. Yeah. And I'm not talking about being nervous initially, because if you're not scared walking into a therapist's office, there's something wrong with you. 
because you're walking in there to be super vulnerable and you don't even know who the person is. So, yeah. you know, it takes a little bit of time to feel comfortable. But I would say that it shouldn't take more than an hour to figure out whether you're in the right place or not. Okay. So how do you maintain your own well-being while you're supporting people dealing with intense experiences? I like that question also. I smile because um, people have told me in the past that the reason I've had some of the health problems I've had, like having a heart attack, is because of my work, right? Because I'm being taken down by all the pain that I... Uh, I'm exposed to it. And I smile because I sure don't feel that way. I've never had a moment of burnout in my entire career because um, I don't take people's pain into my body. I don't think that that's respectful and I don't think it's helpful. I feel like I can be incredibly compassionate and present without taking your pain into my body to try to help you. Because if I do that, it's hurting you in two ways. One, I'm telling you that you're not capable of managing your own pain and number two it's all about me trying to figure out how to be comfortable with your pain so it, that's not a way to help people so my role is to introduce you to your pain and to help you release it from your body with all the different ways that i've come up with in doing that but i don't take any of it in and i think it's it's like uh think about the way thermometers work now right when i was a little kid they would stick a thermometer over your butt to take your temperature yeah which is, you know, not comfortable at all, right? Now they have this little thing, they push it past your forehead two seconds later, and I think that that's all it takes to be able to kind of feel how much pain a person carries and where it comes from. So I feel like I'm, I have a really easy time sort of getting a feeling about where somebody's coming from immediately when they walk in the door the first time. Okay. And I think people are really surprised by that because I started asking them questions that are, quite pointed based on the, the intuitive feelings I'm getting. And they're looking like, how would you know that? And my response is, well, I can feel it. I can see it. You're, you're showing it in ways that you don't realize. Yeah. And I think that's actually a little uncomfortable, but also really comfortable to be seen so quickly and to feel like maybe I'm in the right place in that regard. Nice. Because, you know, being willing to listen to somebody is an act of love. How many people feel like anybody cares about what they have to say? Yeah. It's rare in our world. Yeah. What books might you recommend to people in general that want to be in better mental health, maybe that are still need to address trauma but haven't gotten to the step of going to therapy? Uh, are there any books that you would recommend to people? There are a few. Uh, there's a book that I recommend to people that are highly sensitive by nature. It's called The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron. Uh, it's written about 20 years ago, but it's really, really profound because when you're in the 95th percentile for sensitivity, it really means that you experience reality slightly or profoundly differently than most people in the world. And that can lead to people to feel really bad about themselves and like there's something really wrong with them because they don't feel like they fit in and they experience things on such a deep level that most people look at them like, what's wrong with you? And they're made fun of and made to feel ashamed of themselves for being so sensitive. So that book normalizes sensitivity in a really powerful way. Um, there's another book called Why Is It Always About You? And that's a book about narcissism that I think is like a Bible for that people should read about narcissistic personality disorder and how it affects us all in our world. 
Um, there's another book that was actually written in the 50s by a, a, a contemporary of Freudian psychoanalysis. She has since revised um, the book to take all the psychoanalytic weird stuff out of it. But it, it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Mm. And it's really remarkable because it's, um, it, it, it's, it really helps people understand that if they're born into a family and they're sensitive and they can feel what the family's requirements are, and it's not natural to them. They start changing who they are to accommodate the family. Right? If the family doesn't value sensitivity, they stop being sensitive or showing their sensitivity. If the family doesn't want to deal with things emotionally, they stop expressing their emotions and they start you know, trying to please their family in some way so they can feel safe. The problem is that when you get loved under those circumstances, it doesn't feel real because it's based on a false presentation of yourself. And this is all unconscious, by the way. It's not like a little four-year-old is going to say, oh, you know, my family doesn't like it when I'm emotional, so I'm going to stop. It's all the things that we just figure out if you're smart. And so this woman wrote a book about how important it is to recognize that um, that a lot of times we grow up with a false version of ourselves that we present to the world, and then we don't ever feel safe because the love we get is based on false pretenses. Yeah. And that is a form of trauma. So a lot of people that say to me, oh, I've never had any trauma. And then we begin to talk about the fact that that they absolutely were not accepted in their family unless they change drastically. That is a form of trauma. Yeah. And it affects you for your whole life if you don't realize why relationships don't work out so well, because you're not being yourself. You're being somebody that you created in order to survive. Yeah. So, and that's not in a bad, in badly intended family. It's not like, you know, a lot of these families are terrible people. There's just you know, a lot of cultural weirdness that influences the way we raise our kids. Yeah. So I love those three books. I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Dan, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation tonight. Before we end the recording, I want to give you a chance to talk about your podcast and anything else you want to tell people where to find you and anything else you want to share. Oh, thank you. Um, the best way to find the podcast is to go to fearmeoutpodcast.com. That's my website. All the podcasts are on the website. It also uh, gives you a description of my philosophy as a therapist and the things I think are important. Um, a ton of information is there about trauma, about finding the right therapist, about all the different things that we're afraid of. Um, my wife was a hospice nurse for many years, and so uh, a couple of the episodes are about death and, and how our fear of death affects our life. So there's all kinds of different things that people can find uh, that um, not always easy to listen to, I have to admit. Um, but I, I just, I'm really proud of showing what it looks like for an old man to be vulnerable and talk about his feelings and encourage both men and women to share how they feel. So, yeah, go to my website, please, fearmealpodcast.com. Um, I love queries if you want to you know go to my if you go to my website you, there's a section that says you know if you have any questions reach out because uh, i'm happy to help anybody in any way that they need help it's a passion for me um and what i would say again is you're not your symptoms there's no shame in sharing how you feel and if people are not interested they're not the right people 
for you to be hanging out with. Because if somebody's trying to shut you down, it's not because um, of your problems, it's because of their fear. And to understand that fear runs most of our lives, but it doesn't have to. So that would be sort of my my going away, my going away presence. Awesome. Thank you, Dana. <laughs> and you're very kind to invite me on your show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If you enjoyed it, please share it on social media or with a friend. It really helps out a lot. If you would like to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter is at TMConvos, and Instagram is Thoughtfully Mindless. For the time being, I'm more focused on delivering the audio podcast weekly, but I will, over time, become more active on those social medias as well. Until next time. 